Hello everyone, Callie Hannah here with a quick disclaimer from the future, 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 future. <laughs> the episode you are about to hear was recorded prior to my public coming out as a transgender woman. As such, you will hear myself and others refer to me by my dead name and he, him pronouns, and that is not how I want to be referred to now. I, well, I go by Callie and I use she, her pronouns. Uh, the rest of the episode has been left as is for the purposes of historical preservation, but uh, just know that it is not accurate to my current uh, gender identity. Thank you, and enjoy the show. The hipster and the nerd. Yes, hipster and the nerd. The nerd. One went to the genius. The other is quite absurd. Exactly which is which. Off the fence is which. Yes, good sir. The hipster and the nerd. 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 Hipster and the nerd. Created by Steven Spielberg? No. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Hipster and the Nerd, the podcast where we discuss movies, TV shows, comic books, video games, and all manner of geek and pop culture to see what we can make of it. I Dude. am Chris Hanna. With me, of course, is my co-host, Brian Brecker. How are you doing today, Brian? Is ah, You see what I did there? Hey! Hey! I'm doing fantastic, because if you know anything about me, you know I am a wormhead. I am a dune freak. Is that is that uh, the official term? I'm a term? big fan. Yes. Okay, good. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of dune. Um, and today we're going to be talking about the 80s dune, directed by David Lynch, and the or new Alan dune adaptation <laughs> from 2021, directed by Denis Villeneuve. Denis Villeneuve. He's French. Villeneuve. He's French. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Romance. I am French. He, he is French. Daddy. And we will compare them. And also, we will talk about Dune in general and where we think uh, it's going in the future. Because this is obviously not the last Dune movie that's going to come out. Thank God. This is good. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I know we're both excited to talk about it. So first off, what I thought I would do is introduce to you and to Chris... Some of the more heavy lore aspects of Dune Excellent. for humor and for information. <laughs> Just like the Dune adaptations and the original novel, we're going to start off with a very heavy-handed exposition dump that could probably be handled better. But we're going to do it like this anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, in the 1950s, Frank Herbert was an up-and-coming science fiction author, and he took a little trip out to the desert to write for an article about ecology in a desert, and he got really sidetracked. Then, he started cultivating psilocybin mushrooms and got really high. <laughs> and that's where the idea for Dune came from. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. Are you okay, Chris? by getting high in a desert like that's hilarious well, and not just that he after he got back from the desert he created a shrooms farm like he he had shrooms farms where he lived where he would write 
This is the best thing I've ever heard in my life. Now, one of the big misconceptions about the Duneverse, as us fans like to call the, it, the Duneverse, uh, is that it takes place in the year ten thousand one hundred ninety-one. This is technically correct, but it takes place t- in the year 10,191 since the creation of House Carino and the end of the Butlerian Jihad. So it's technically a different calendar, sort of, I guess. That's- yeah, it's basically probably 20,000 years in the future. But, you know, that if we actually made a timeline, it's so far into the future that Earth is basically abandoned at this point, And humanity has since gone across into the stars I see, so earth has been converted planets. into a spirit halloween uh okay good, it, yes good exactly <laughs> basically what happened is it all descended into a feudal system and they started relying on machines and these all-knowing machines started to take over the world and then people rebelled against the machines in what was called the butlerian jihad okay, okay. Yeah, now the Butlerian Jihad established the norm that one may not make a machine in the likeness of a man's mind, sourced from the Orange Catholic Bible. So no C-3PO's here. (laughs) No, no. No. So all of the machines that exist in the Dune universe have to work based off of mechanical operation. Unless you're on the planet X, because the planet X... Named creatively because it was the ninth planet, IX, X, has gone kind of rogue, and they make machines, and nobody seems to care that much because they're kind of useful. Meanwhile, also, there is the planet Tlilaxu. Now, the planet Tlilaxu (laughs) creates two different things that are kind of important, not really for the first novel, but for later novels, the Golas which are basically like cloned versions of a person to bring them back to life, and face dancers. And face dancers are basically magicians that change their face to basically impersonate a historical figure, okay? Okay. Yeah. So then House Carino is the one that came to power at the end of the Butlerian Jihad, and they stayed in power for the next 10,000 years, leading up to where we are at the beginning of Dune, where the Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV is in power. And he has two daughters, Princess Erlin, and another one that's not important until Children of Dune, but we'll get to that later. (laughs) I mean, they're probably not going to get to Children of Dune in the movies anyway, but yeah. Yeah. Um, now, the way space travel works is super fucking weird, okay? Because it's powered by space weed. Exactly. <laughs> the psychedelic drug melange, or also known as the geriatric spice. The or spice. The spice. It's, it's the spice. It prolongs your life, allows you to see into the future, allows you to access past genetic memories. And makes and... you really high. <laughs> yes. And the reason why this is important is because basically the way that space travel works is through some sort of wormhole theory. It's based off of uh, this one engine part, which I forget the name of right now, but it's this one engine part that makes wormholes exist. And then what they have to do is to go through space and time without hitting any stars. They need prescient vision to see the future. So, the guild navigators, who by this point are mutated fish people that live inside tanks of liquid spice, 
Okay. So they're constantly high. <laughs> okay. Basically see into the future. And from that point, they they basically decide, oh, that's where the star is going to be. This is where the ship needs to go. And that's how they do it without computers. Now we need to talk about the Mentats. Oh my god. So because computers are outlawed, a cool organization of people to basically train people to be computers now exists called the Mentats. And they're able to do incredible calculations at a very short amount of time. They're trained from birth. Paul Atreides, who's the main character of Dune 1 through 3, well, Dune 1 through 2 and a side character in 3, he is basically trained as a Mentat from birth but doesn't realize it. Now, the Mentats basically act as advisors to the different lords of the Landsrad. Now, I know what you're wondering. What's the Landsrad? <laughs> well, the Landsrad is the council of all the great houses that mostly have shares in the basically oligarchical base monopoly called the Chome Company. What's the Chome Company? Oh my God. Well, the Chome Company is a giant galactic mercantile monopoly that is basically controlled by shares of different ruling houses so to control the chome is to control the galaxy but of course none of this can happen without the spice which is mined on the planet arrakis because it is created through the bile of giant space worms the the whole space travel thing is also monopolized by the guild navigators who we referred to earlier in their organization called the spacing guild and no one goes up against the spacing guild because if you do then you will have your license revoked and you will go into disarray so that is basically everything you need to know oh the bene Gesserit. I almost forgot about the Bene Gesserit. They're not so, Jedi and they're all women. The end. <laughs> yes. Well, well, the Bene Gesserit are a all-women order of people that are trying to breed a genetic messiah. When you become a Bene Gesserit, you can access the female memories of all of your ancestors. And when they are trying to create the Kwisatz Haderach, that is the male opposite of that. Someone who can access all of not only the female heirs, but the male heirs. And that is who Lady Jessica is attempting to create when birthing Paul Atreides, one generation too early. And that is all the background we need to talk about Dune. I mean, we probably didn't need to talk about the planet Twilaxia or whatever, but it's <laughs> Twilax you, Chris. Twilax. Anyways, which one do you want to talk about first? 1984 or 2021? Well, we should probably go in chronological order. So let's talk about the 1984 uh, original version of Dune, which David Lynch, the director, disowns. <laughs> well, yes, but we can't talk about that before also talking about Alejandro Yodorowsky's Dune. So Yodorowsky, the amazing Chilean director of such films as the holy mountain and the dance of reality attempted to make dune in the 70s as a passion oh. project he was trying to have pink floyd do the soundtrack <laughs> well i mean sting is in this one so yes and you know who would do the you know who would play vladimir harkonnen oh orson fucking wells holy shit our songs will all be silent but what of it? Go on singing. <laughs> so that fell through. 
for obvious reasons of cost, but it was so influential in the whole production history of Dune as a movie that it got its own documentary, which is called Yodorowsky's Dune, and you can watch that. It's a very interesting documentary. They approached Ridley Scott at one point to try and work on Dune, and that fell through also, before they finally landed on David Lynch. Now, the fact that David Lynch is the director is really fucking weird, because David Lynch, as we now know, is an experimental weirdo that makes movies like yeah, Inland Empire because, and Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. It's something I noted in my in my review, even though mm-hmm. I, spoiler alert, I don't think this movie is particularly good. Um, right. I, I do think it is interesting and kind of admirable to see a David Lynch, a filmmaker who is primarily known for surrealist narratives and psychological uh, that, horror and psychological <laughs> horror that both ground themselves in human in real human characters and contemporary experiences to then and electric trees called the arm but that's twin peaks that's that's a different thing um <laughs> uh, to and to see someone like that make a try to make a straightforward sci-fi story set in the far-flung future is interesting um, it is extremely interesting <laughs> yes it's it's kind of admirable to see him try and go out of his comfort zone and admittedly yes. but i don't well, think it entirely works <laughs> to put this in the context of david lynch's career so he came out in the 1970s 1977 i believe with a racer head which was this body horror independent film which got him a lot of traction and that's when he was put on to do the elephant man which is probably his most normal movie outside of the one he did about farmers okay Um, and at that point people are like oh this was a big critical success it was pretty normal ish uh, we could get this guy to do a bigger mainstream project. Is ah, what people are thinking. so it's like the modern uh, pipeline from uh, one or two indie films, and then you get to make a superhero movie. Exactly. It was like that, except it didn't work out. <laughs> In fact, George Lucas approached David Lynch to try and get him to direct Return of the Jedi. Holy shit. I was asked uh, by George uh, to t- come up to see him and talk to him about directing, which would would be the third Star Wars. And I had next door to zero interest. But I always admired George. You know, George is a guy that does what he loves, and I do what I love. The difference is what George loves makes hundreds of billions of dollars. So I thought I should go up and at least visit with him. And I came into an office and there was George. And he talked with me for a little bit and then he said, I wanna show you something. Now, right about in this time, I started getting a little bit of a headache. So he took me upstairs and he showed me these things called Wookiees. And now this headache is getting, you know, getting stronger. And he showed me many animals and different things. Then he took me for a ride in his Ferrari for a lunch. And George is uh, kind of short. So he was 
his seat was way back and he was almost laying down in the car. We were flying through this little town up in Northern California. We went to a restaurant. Not that I don't like salad, but that's all they had was, was salad. <laughs> then I got a really, uh, an almost like a migraine headache. And I could hardly wait to get to home. And I even before I got home, I kind of crawled into a phone booth and phoned my agent. I said, there's no way, I know no way I can do this. He said, David, 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 calm down. You don't have to do this. And um, so George, bless his heart, I told him on the phone the next day that he should direct it. It's his film. He invented everything about it. Man, I want to see the on that. Damn, now I want to see the movie about George Lucas trying to make David Lynch direct Return to the Jedi. <laughs> At which point, uh, you know, so th- these were the sorts of projects he was getting offers for. And then Dino De Laurentiis, who of course is a kind of cult exploitation indie darling yeah, producer. Yeah, like I, I knew I recognized He uh, produced uh, Evil Dead 2. <laughs> yeah, that for guy. Instance. Yeah. yeah. He approached David Lynch, and he's like, all right, how, how would you like to do Dune? And he's like, oh, this is kind of weirder. Okay, I can get get on with this. And that's how David Lynch got to direct a $100 million, uh, no, a, a, uh, a $40 million movie. Now, this movie stars Patrick Stewart, Brad Durf, Sting, Sting, Dean Stockwell, Virginia Madsen, Jose Ferrer, Linda Hunt and Max, Max von Sydow, <laughs> and if if you're a fan of Twin Peaks or Blue Velvet, Kyle MacLachlan, in your his good film... friend Dale Cooper from the FBI, in his, in his film debut. You know, this is excuse me, a damn fine cup of coffee. I've had I can't tell you how many cups of coffee in my life, and this this is one of the best. As Paul Atreides, and yeah. So Dune 1984 is very interesting because, first off, it starts with, like, space, and this woman is just there, and she starts monologuing Talking about, about beginnings and, <laughs> that, and, and what the universe is like. and that, Yeah, and then there's a massive exposition dump. Well, that's the thing, is that Dune 1984 is at once trying to explain too much and at another time not explaining things at all. <laughs> like I, I like like it's weird how this is uh this is a shorter movie than the new one. Right. And it tells a more for lack of a better term finished story in the sense that it gets through all of the first book. But at the <laughs> same time, it feels like it takes more time for less things to happen. And that's that's majorly a problem, I think, of the adaptation, which is that the film very heavily adapts the first half of the book and then kind of glosses through all of the events of the second half in like, montages. Like the second half happens entirely within the last half hour of the book. Right. The most important parts of the story are like montage through. So I feel like we should get into the plot. So yeah, the most valuable so... substance in the Empire is the spice, a drug that extends life and expands consciousness. The it spice makes you also really high and sp- can let you fly the spaceships. Yes, yeah. it allows the Spacing Guild to fold space, permitting safe, instantaneous interstellar travel. Also, I will say, I, I will, I will say, you know, I've got, I, I will probably talk some shit about this movie, 
But mm-hmm. I will say the score slaps. Oh yeah, because it's done by Toto. Yeah, I saw in the credits. It was like Toto. It's like, oh, I get it. I bless the rains down in <laughs> Africa. I bless the rains down on Iraq. Down in Arrakis. I bless. The- <laughs> So, the guild fears a conspiracy could jeopardize spice production and sends an emissary to demand an explanation from the emperor. So, they bring in this giant container unit. All all of this isn't in the book, by the way. They bring in this giant container unit and they open it up and there's this amazing guild navigator. And it's like a really awesome practical effect. And I love that we get to see the guild navigator. Uh, And I headcanon this as Edric from Dune Messiah. Don't at me. So the emissary, Edric, demands an explanation from the emperor who reveals his scheme to destroy House Atreides by basically giving them house, giving them Arrakis and then basically using Harkonnen troops and uniforms for their Sardaukar, the Sardaukar are like the imperial troops, to then make it look like the Harkonnens are attacking House Atreides when really it is the Emperor trying to get rid of House Atreides. Yeah, which is... Um, it's a bit of a convoluted thing, but it's kind of a Game of Thrones kind of yeah, plot. Yeah, because... It's, and it's also, unlike the uh, new one, it is upfront about the idea that the Emperor is just sending Atreides to Arrakis to kill them. Right. Because in the new one, it's a twist, whereas this was like, oh... Yeah, well, the, in the book, it's it's revealed in the first chapter that we get with Vladimir Harkonnen. He basically tells his entire villain plan to his nephew, Fade Ratha and Robin. So, ah, and, Fade Ratha, what an unexpected surprise. Which is interesting because, uh, we'll get to this later, but Dune 2021 kind of merges Fade Ratha and Robin into Dave Batista's character, yeah, Robin. People, yeah, people are wondering if they're even going to have Fade Ratha... I feel like, uh, this is just an offhand thing, but I feel like the reason why they excluded Fade Ratha is the weird homophobic undertones of the fact that Vladimir Harkonnen is evil and really wants to have sex with his nephew. (laughs) I mean, I feel like they would cut that out anyway. (laughs) Well, it's kind of implied in this version, in the David Lynch version. Well, the Emperor fears Dugletto Atreides' growing popularity and a secret army he is reportedly amassing, which isn't in the book, threaten his rule. In the book and in the 2021 version, they're planning to get rid of House Atreides because they're gaining popular support in the lands rat. Now, the Guild Navigator commands the Emperor to kill Leto's son, Paul Atreides, because the Guild fears he may somehow threaten spiced production, which, hey, that's that's a nice touch. I like that, because they have prescient knowledge, because they're constantly bathing in fucking future future spice weed. Space weed. It's space Space weed. Smoke. Space weed. Every day. The execution order draws the attention of the Bene Gesserit Sisterhood, which, again, is not in the book the Bene Gesserit already have plans <laughs> it, uh, relating to Paul in the book since Paul is tied to their centuries-long breeding program to produce the Kwisatz the, Haderach the, Kwisatz Haderach, the, the chosen one <laughs> the chosen one basically it's kind of a chosen one subverted if you read more of the sequels because Paul Atreides was born one generation late and you see this in the scene where Lady Jessica is chastised by the Bene Gesserit sisterhood that, you know, she should have had daughters because they were planning on marrying one of her daughters to one of the Harkonnens. And then yeah. that would have, the, the result of that breeding would have been the Kwisatz Haderach. So we'll get into that a little bit later. <laughs> 
So before Paul leaves for Arrakis, he is tested by the Bene Gesserit River Reverend Mother Mohim by being forced to endure excruciating pain in the Gam Jabar test. Yeah, because uh, he puts his hand in a... This happens in both versions, but he puts his hand in a box, and the box has pain in it. It's yes. like... Remember that one episode of Gravity Falls? Well, yeah, it was a, it was a reference. Or remember Phantasm? The scene in Phantasm where where the kid sticks his hand into the magician lady's box and then he starts feeling pain in his hand and then he takes it out and his hand's fine? Yeah. In other words, Phantasm stole that scene from Dune. <laughs> also, I'd like to point out that but right before this, there's also the, the combat training with um, yes. Gurney. Uh, who he was this played version, by Patrick Stewart. In Patrick Stewart. And who is horribly miscast. I mean, look, I love Patrick Stewart, but like, I definitely feel like Josh Brolin was a much better fit for the character. So Gurney Halleck is an interesting character because he's kind of a battle-worn veteran. He was basically... Uh, he escaped slave pits on the planet... Uh, oh god, what's it called? The, the Harkonnens planet Yeti Prime. And because of that, he, one, hates the Harkonnens, and two is kind of a cynical warrior poet. Like, he constantly has a balisette, which is kind of like a space guitar, and he likes to do songs and stuff. And in this, he's played by Patrick Stewart, who is more known for playing stately figures and honorable gentlemen, which doesn't really fit Gurney Halleck's whole yeah. deal. What, uh, yeah. well, but no, my, my personal favorite part is when they when they actually start the sparring session and they and the the shields are like weird Minecraft doors. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, to be fair, the whole only slow blades can penetrate the shield is a difficult thing to translate to the screen. Okay, like I understand that, mm-hmm. but why Minecraft? What? I mean, it was what? a choice. That's what I say about a lot of this movie is that a lot of the choices aren't correct but they're interesting choices they are definitely and that's why i i kind of like this movie Eh. i find it to be i find this movie to be disappointingly mediocre (laughs) i mean that's fair i mean now that we have the definitive in my opinion version of dune i feel like this is a lot more quaint and enjoyable then if you were to watch this at the time and this would be the only version of Dune. I if I like if I had watched this back when I read the book in high school, right. I probably would have been like, what the fuck is this? Like This fucking sucks. Uh so meanwhile I also wanna point out that <laughs> yeah. at, you know, for for the shit we you, you might talk shit about Patrick Stewart, but I will say I don't think that casting is anywhere near as bad as um, especially in comparison to the, especially when compared to how how well they got it in the new one, I feel like the the worst example of the casting is whoever the Wonder Bread, generic McWhite guy is they got for Duncan Idaho, because he's so <laughs> boring. Like, well, I mean, honestly, that's kind of fair, because honestly, so Duncan Idaho is basically the Boba Fett of Dune in the sense that he was a side character. That fans latched onto because he was cool and mysterious, and then they brought him back <laughs> in the sequels. Uh, and besides that, he didn't really have much of a character. The, the difference is that the new movie made him actually cool because he yeah. was Jason Momoa, and we'll talk about that. Um, right. Whereas this, I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? He's Duncan Idaho. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Okay, fine. Uh, now we get to my favorite scene in in the in this Dune adaptation. The Gietti Prime scene with Vladimir Harkonnen. Is this the part where Stig shows up? 
Yeah, yeah. So, so, so their interpretation of Vladimir Harkonnen is not to make him scary. It's to make him utterly disgusting. Oh, yeah, because doesn't he, he weirdly, he looks like Fat Bastard from Austin Powers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he looks like Fat Bastard. He just boils over his face. He's like, look at my beauty. <laughs> and my favorite thing about the Harkonnens, which is a David Lynch edition, and I think this is so funny, is that <laughs> they have a heart thing. They have like this little capsule on their chest. Where basically, if you pull out the thing, they just bleed out. So basically, at any point, if you annoy the Baron, he will just pull out the lever from your chest and you'll bleed out. <laughs> it's the most crazy fucking bullshit. Uh, and he also has, like, these twinkish servants. Yeah! <laughs> that, like, bring him food and stuff, which, yes, to be fair, he does. I think... is kind of accurate. <laughs> Fade Rotha comes in and he's like has this wild red hair and it's like standing up as soon as i as soon as he walked through the door i was like is that fucking sting like, it looks like carrot top it does look like carrot top oh shit and, and meanwhile, meanwhile robin is like this this chubby guy and you're like okay which fair you know robin is a bit more muscular in the book but okay uh, and he tells them about his plan to eliminate house atreides by manipulating someone in the duke's orbit to betray him before Killing a young male servant who has flowers and then levitating upwards to the oh, sky, yeah. laughing hysterically. <laughs> I love it. He who controls the spice controls the universe. I, I honestly, I kind of love that they just made him a giant hot air blitz. <laughs> I think that's hilarious. So the Atreides leave their homeworld, Caladan, for Arrakis which is a barren desert planet populated by gigantic sandworms, as we know. And the native people of Arrakis, the Fremen, prophesy that a messiah will lead them to freedom. And Duncan Idaho, one of Leto's loyalists, tells him that he suspects Dune holds a vast number of Fremen who could provide to be powerful our allies. And what's interesting here is that uh, they go through the scene where, you know, they save the, the people. I really like how the worms are done in this. I think the worms are very cool looking. I like the worms. Yeah, they're, they're pretty good. They're they're much better than the the fucking awful sci-fi TV miniseries worms. Oh my god. We don't god. talk. Well, we don't. Well, well, everything about them. We're not talking about the miniseries in this, for the record. Because, yes. no. Um. Dispatch orders to your navigators. They are to depart our space and return the fleet to its homes immediately. The guild does not take your orders. So the native people of Arrakis prophesy that a messiah will lead them to freedom. And this is part of the Bene Gesserit's plan called the Protectiva Missionaria, which is basically they have planted seeds of an idea that there will be a galactic messiah on millions of worlds. So they have cargo culted a galactic messiah which would be the Kwisatz Haderach, which would allow the Bene Gesserit to take control of the galaxy, basically. Uh, and that doesn't end up happening because Muad'Dib gets different ideas. Uh, and what happens next is Leto saves some of the people on the Sandcrawler, you know. And before Leto can form an alliance with the Fremen, the Harkonnens launch their attacks. And I have to point out also that the Fremen in this are white. Yeah. Which doesn't really make much sense because... Because there's a lot notable. of Middle Eastern influence. For, right. For, I for, mean, for, a lot of the words... Or, I mean, like, for good or ill, Arrakis yeah. is kind of planet war for oil. Right. And that's the, that's the whole point of Dune, is that Dune is basically science fiction, space opera tropes meets Islamic philosophy... And a lot of other things, which is very interesting. Like, there's specific words that are taken from 
uh, Arabic, like obviously jihad. What's interesting is that these elements, some people say that Dune, and I think this is very interesting, is a white savior novel. And Which I think not, you could definitely say that yeah, it's is not fair. off base. It's not off base. But if you point out that he's actually a false messiah, cargo culted by a galaxy order of witches that are trying to breed a superhuman being, it's kind of a white savior subverted in that way. But also not so much that he could really call it like woke or anything like that. I've heard that there is some discourse about this, especially after Dune 2021 came out. I saw there was an article that was titled uh, Islamic representation is mostly just symbolic and nothing else in Dune. And I'm like, fair. I mean, yeah. But also that's true to the novel they're adapting. I mean, yeah, but that doesn't mean that the, I mean, that doesn't make it better. Right. Uh, so we talk about the fact that there is some interesting Islamic undertones and they just decide to cast them as white people, which does make sense for two reasons. One, it doesn't fit with the themes and subtext of Dune. And two, there's like a really hot sun above them and they live in the desert. How are they not tan at all? Yeah, they should, they should be way tanner. Unless they have like the greatest sun, unless they have the most effective sunblock of all time. I mean, they that's, have still suits, that's to be true. fair. That's Which, you know, recycle the body's water. Um, so before Leto can form an alliance with the Fremen, the Harkonnens launch their attack. And the Harkonnens traitor, Dr. Yue, Dr. Yue in the book, gave Paul a orange Catholic Bible. And the, uh, do you want to know what the orange Catholic Bible is? Uh, it's The orange Catholic Bible is basically a galactic super faith text that is basically robots bad and a lot of other advice okay it's pretty simple and he gave her gave he gave paul one of these and he in the book opened it up to his wife's favorite passage and he was like no fuck you don't do that his wife wanna is being basically controlled by the harkonnens and kept slave to the harkonnens oh by, and that the, is by the way we should also i guess we should mm -hmm. also mention um uh lady jessica um, who is Paul's mother, um, yes. is in the book, if, if, from what I remember of the book, and in this version, not uh, Duke Leto's wife, but rather his concubine. Yes. Dr. Wellington Yua is basically, he is a personal physician who has gone under imperial training, and that is why he has a diamond tattoo on his forehead. Uh, imperial conditioning basically means that he is not allowed to lie to the people that he services. But when the Harkonnens basically took him and created him and turned him into a double agent to save his his wife, Wana, they broke his imperial conditioning, which nobody knew was possible. That's important information that's kind of left out of both adaptations. Well, it's, it's in Dune 1984 more than it's in Dune 2021. But Wellington Yua disables the critical shields, leaving the Atreides nearly defenseless. Idaho is killed, which happens later on in the book. Oh, Leto I forgot that they actually had the Duncan Idaho death scene in this. Because yes. it kind of feels like it feels like it's less that in this version, it feels like less that he dies and more that the movie just forgot he existed and he just stops being in it. Right, and, and then Leto is captured, and nearly all of House Atreides is wiped out by the Harkonnens, 
And this is the scene where basically Dr. Wellington Yua gives him the gas tooth and then he bites down on it. And this in the, the 1980s version, it's super anticlimactic. Yeah. Like, like he just bites down the tooth and then he's dead. And it's like, okay, well, whereas Dune 2021 makes like a whole moment out of it. Yeah. Because you're supposed to actually care about the characters. Because it's like. Which is a problem with this film is that they spend so much time establishing the lore and the visuals they forget to have characters we get we get we get an exposition like we're still getting exposition dumps nearly an hour into the movie in the yeah in the 1984 version and then you know duke leto he does the weird toxic breath thing and it kind of just happens and then he's fucking dead and it's like i i think part of this might be a brechtian effect of the fact that we keep hearing the character's thoughts yeah that, like voiceover. it feels like everybody has an inner monologue um, right oh that's true to the book because in the book there is a okay third person omniscient yeah. perspective that he- jumps between different people's heads okay yes but like inner monologues don't really work in film like that's, i agree with you yeah and that there's a reason to have like kind of like a, like in yeah. in comic books like spider-man talks to himself all of the time and it's a yeah. core part of like what his character in the in the comics but, like, there's a reason none of the Spider-Man movies have decided to give him an inner monologue. Because that would be terrible. Like, that yeah. would suck. <laughs> like... Well, then I'd like to point out that uh, it kind of gives this movie a dreamlike quality. Which, at one point, I think does kind of help and make it distinct. I mean, In that, the sense that it does true. very much feel like a David Lynch movie. But in another sense, it kind of separates you from what happens. And also, like, there's a reason that most people, including myself, don't remember their dreams. They're often not worth remembering because they don't make any sense and are kind of boring. (laughs) Well, you're not going to say that when you watch David Lynch's good movies. That's true. Uh, Well, we'll get. But, you know, that's what I mean about. (laughs) But, you know, that's (laughs) I'm not wrong. David Lynch's dreams are cool. (laughs) I'd like to point out that I think some of the visual style when we get into some of the hallucinogenic scenes are pretty cool. Yeah, that's that's pretty good. There's these interlinking montages of like a hand and then water dripping. I do say one of the few things that I will give this movie over the 2021 movie is that there are multiple scenes of Paul Atreides just tripping balls on space weed. It's mentioned in the beginning of Dune, the book, that Paul Atreides does have prescient dreams, but they're not really as intense as when he interacts with the spice. And when he interacts with the spice, it exaggerates his power, okay? Right. It helps him see the future to the point where in Dune Messiah, he basically can see every option he could possibly make, every timeline, and he gets really depressed. Oh, so he has Garnet's future vision? Yes. Okay, good to know. Yeah. Uh, in, in the Lynch version, which we're talking about, Dr. Yue, he helps House Atreides get betrayed and also basically gives them an out to try and escape. And then Baron Harkonnen has Mentat Piter DeVry kill Dr. Yue with a poison blade. And I like how Piter DeVry is just such an asshole <laughs> in every version of this story, uh, especially in the book. In the book, he's like a jester figure. Because he's just constantly pissing off the Baron, and the Baron's like, "I'm gonna murder you," and he's like, "You've been saying that for so long. Do it, I you basically won't. accept it. Do it, you <laughs> won't." <laughs> and uh, the poison tooth implanted by Doctor Yue uh, goes off, and it doesn't kill 
sadly, the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. Now, Paul and Jessica survive the attack and escape into the deep desert, where they are given sanctuary by a siege of Fremen. By, by, by the Fremen. Uh, Chani yeah. is there, briefly. Um, mm-hmm. And this is where we are caught up to where the Villeneuve movie ends. Right. And Chani's not that big of a character in this version, where she is a much bigger character in Dune, and especially a much bigger character in Dune Messiah. Um, so it's kind of weird that they lessened down on her character. I think it's because by this point they were just like, they didn't, didn't have enough I, time. I don't think they, I don't think they had any notion of doing the sequels. Like, well, it, yeah, that's true. So, but also I feel like with their adaptation of Dune, they got like halfway through, I feel like. And then they just read a summary of the rest of the book. Yeah, they they got and they then, got they got tired, and then they were just like, hey, "Fuck it, just look it yeah, up." They like, went to like the notes. fucking uh, just spark notes thugs, it. <laughs> just... the thug notes version of thug, the book. Thug... <laughs> uh, then what happens is they go to the siege, and Paul assumes the Fremen name Muad'Dib, which isn't explained what it means in this version, but Muad'Dib is the name of the small desert mouse, which appears in the twenty twenty one version and also oh yeah the little mouse yeah 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 that's muadib and he's given that name uh because they he is obviously short and also because he is a rapscallion he's a small desert mouse he's he's, 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 he's scrappy even though he kind of just looks like every other white man on the face of the planet but now i'd like to point out there are three different names four different names for paul uh there is muadib madi Mahdi means Messiah. Lisan Lisan Al-Gabe, which also means Messiah. And the Kwisatz Haderach, which also means Messiah. Why don't we just say Messiah? (laughs) (laughs) He teaches them how to build and use weirding modules, which are these sonic weapons developed by House Atreides to basically, like, scream at people. So, yeah, they translate speech into, like, violent things to try and attack people in the weirding way of Bene Gesserit martial arts. So sonic weapons developed by House Atreides and target spice mining. So also, there's a very like... bizarre thing with like Vladimir and his cat. I don't understand this. Was... What happened between him and his cat? I don't, I don't know. Like there's a, there's a thing where he has a cat and yeah. he's just like obsessing over the cat. And like, it kind of feels like he wants to fuck it. Of course or, he does. He's even... Vladimir Harkonnen. That's completely in character. Okay, but like, why is this in the movie? Because he wants to fuck that cat. <laughs> but why does he? Shane Dawson has entered the chat. <laughs> oh, no. What have I done? So basically, they're they're doing like this guerrilla warfare against the Harkonnens that now control the spice mining. And meanwhile, Vladimir Harkonnen has given governorship duties to his nephew Robin, and Robin's fucking it up. And over the next two years, spice production is nearly halted, which slows down all of galactic everything. And the Spacing Guild informs the Emperor of the deteriorating situation on Arrakis and demands he rectify it. Now, Paul falls in love with Chani, even though she's barely in this movie. She's just... Yeah, well, much like most... Well, basically, like all of the female characters in this version, they kind of just exist. For example, Alia, Paul's sister. That's right, right. Paul has a sister sister and she just is born kind of just it happens like yeah during the last 30 minutes and then she just kind of exists well in the, the rest- book alia is born with all of her genetic memories because when 
at the end at the end of the half of of dune when they engage in the spice orgy and and yes it is a spice orgy um lady jessica ingests so much spice that her pregnant child becomes awakened in the womb and basically inherits all of her genetic memories before she's even born so what that means is that when alia is born she basically knows everything about her ancestors their entire lives and basically is an adult that can talk and it's really weird and the other Bene Gesserit refer to this as abomination also the also the also the worm riding scene is incredibly anticlimactic yes it is uh and then what happens is Lady Jessica becomes the Fremen's reverend mother by ingesting the water of life the water of life being basically it's a it's like a dead worm thing, and then they all drink it, and then they all get really fucking high. <laughs> and a deadly poison, which she renders harmless by using her Bene Gesserit abilities. As an after-effect of this ritual, Jessica's unborn child emerges from the womb with all the powers, as we talked about. And in a prophetic dream, Paul learns of the plot by the Emperor and the Guild to kill him. Which I feel like he should already practically no considering he's been engaging in guerrilla warfare against i mean them? they also like shouldn't they have figured out by this point like that that's the whole reason the emperor sent them to this planet to begin with like yeah i think they know that yeah yeah exactly so you have to know the emperor wants to kill you if you know that it's like by the way i'd like to point out that some of the most iconic lines like the sleeper has the awakened. The sleeper has awakened. <laughs> and the spice must flow. The spice must flow. Are mostly this movie originals? Which like I think bizarre. the spice must flow might be said somewhere I in these books. I vaguely remember that in the book. Like yeah, I'm, I, I mean it's more the general sense of yes, the spice the must spice flow. The spice must flow was definitely in the book. I don't think the sleeper has awakened was. That's a that's a Lynch original, and, and I think and that's said, just because it's become a meme. Like at this yeah. point, like well, it, it's also a thing that's meant to indicate Paul's arc because at the beginning of the film, he he's told by his father, you know, like oh, the sleeper must awaken, the sleeper must awaken. And then at the middle point, he's like, the sleeper must awaken. And then after he goes through the, the spice orgy, he's like, the sleeper, sleeper has awakened. Yeah. So then they see this dream and he also sees that they fear he will consume the water of life. And when Paul's dreams suddenly stop, he, he drinks the water of life and has a profound psychedelic trip in the desert. Yes. Uh, which basically takes all of the hallucination scenes before this and packs them into one. And he gains powerful psychic powers and the ability to control sandworms, which he realizes are the spice's source. The worm is the spice. The spice is created from the bile of the worm. And this is actually interesting because we find out in Dune Messiah and Children of Dune that the worms are not a, a native species to Arrakis. They were transplanted there as it would be an ocean planet. And then they drank all of the liquid in the planet. And that's how they got so big. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, then what happens is he, he gains all the powers, and the Emperor amasses a huge invasion fleet above Arrakis to wipe out the Fremen and regain control of the planet. He has Rabin beheaded, which is hilarious, and summons Baron Harkonnen to explain why spice mining is stopped. Paul launches a final attack against the Harkonnens and the Emperor Sardaukar at Arrakeen, the capital city, and riding atop a sandworm and brandishing sonic weapons, Paul's Fremen warriors 
which are also called the Fate Occur, by the way, uh, easily defeat the Emperor's legions of Sardaukar. And Paul's sister Aaliyah, I love how Aaliyah's the one to kill Baron Harkonnen. I love that in the book. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's so anticlimactic, and I love it. It's an it's um, nice, but it's 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 not it's it's not as impactful here when Aaliyah just kind of exists. I'm really excited to see how Denis Villeneuve tackles the whole issue of psychic child born with prescient knowledge. That's... I think that's going to be great. Oh boy. Uh, and he, she, he's killed by her, which in a really weird scene, cause everybody else is evacuated by this point, but he's still there. Yeah. Cause they had reason. to, cause they had the whole laser battle. They had right. the, they had the big wormy boy. Um, yeah. and, but then Aaliyah is just still there and she, she kills the guy with her brain power. And then well, she he, stabs him. He stabs him. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 She, she stabs him. And then he. Then she does the weird brain power thingy, I think. Yep. Yeah. And then he so dies. Then Paul, Paul confronts the defeated Emperor Sh- uh, Shaddam IV and fights Fade Ratha in a duel to the death. Yeah, the final duel. And after killing Fade, Paul demonstrates his newfound powers and fulfills the Bremen prophecy by causing rain to fall on Yeah, Arrakis. because because uh, uh, throughout the movie at this point, there's been random lightning at ver- yes. at various points in time. And then it ends... As Paul has become Space Jesus, there's even more lightning, and then he makes it rain, because that... he is the Kwisatz Haderach. For he is the Kwisatz Haderach! Uh, I think that, okay, so, in the sequels, they do start terraforming the planet to the point where it does rain... So maybe that's like a symbolic thing to look at the sequels, but honestly, they probably didn't look at the sequels. <laughs> yeah, no, they, it's they mostly just David Lynch thought it was cool, so they did it. Uh, so basically, Paul blackmails the Emperor into making him Emperor of the Galactic Universe. They kind of, you know, gloss over the fact that after this, he would launch a bloody jihad and kill billions of people across the galaxy. But, you know, uh, and then the movie ends with Aaliyah being like, he is the Quizzat Because that's Hadarak. So, 1984 Dune is a really fun time. It's not good in, like, a technical or storytelling way. I think it has a lot of interesting visuals and ideas. But as an adaptation, it's not very good. As a film that you can put on and kind of laugh at and enjoy the weirdness of it, I think it has that. So I think it does have some positive qualities. I think... Kyle MacLachlan is is doing a pretty good job as Paul Atreides, even if he is a bit too old for the part. Yeah. <laughs> um, and just because Kyle MacLachlan is amazing in everything that he's in, uh, there's one joke where David Lynch is like, "Ah, oh, yes, looking at different pictures of different like headshots of Kyle MacLachlan. Who am I gonna choose for my next film's head role? You know, because uh, he just casts him in everything." Oh, we forgot to mention, Jack Nance shows up at one point as uh, the captain of the Baron Harkonnen's g- uh, guard. That was fun. He was also in the, um, he was in, when they save all the spice uh, miners, he was one of the people inside the ship. And, he, and if you don't know who Jack Nance is, he plays the titular character Eraserhead in Eraserhead. And also shows up as Pete in Twin Peaks. So, fun uh, David Lynch facts there. So yeah, uh, and also Princess Erlin is here. She has nothing to do, but that's pretty accurate to the book. Um, <laughs> so yeah, Brad Durf is part of Devria's fun also. 
Uh, Brad, Brad Dourif is fun. Lady Jessica's fun. Uh, again, Patrick Stewart is horribly miscast. <laughs> so overall, I'd say that this movie is not a good adaptation, but it is fun. And that's, I give it a tentative thumb up and say, if you want to check it out, it's not a terrible time. The music's really great. That's um, And yeah, it's not as good as the new one, but it's pretty uh, good. Very Chris, obviously. <laughs> um, what do you think of Dune? Okay. So 1984. Ni- the 1984 David Lynch version of Dune is a movie. Okay. So positives. Uh, the score slaps. Like Toto's yes. score is fantastic. Um, I think... Uh, a lot of the visuals are really are really good. Um, the overall, like the visuals, the the visual effects, the set design, the shot composition and cinematography are overall ra- rather good. Um, it is David Lynch. Yeah. Yes, of course. Um, <laughs> I would say pretty much the whole cast is at the very least giving it their all. Um, Except for Patrick Stewart. Uh, no, Patrick's horribly Sto- miscast. Okay, look, Patrick's Sto- like he's horribly miscast, but he's trying. He is giving yes, an effort. That's true. So I can yeah. I can appreciate that. Um, you know, there are multiple scenes, as I mentioned, there are multiple scenes of Paul Atreides tripping out uh, and tripping balls on space weed. So I, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, but the problem is, the, the problem with this movie for me is that there is a massive over-reliance on exposition dumps and inner monologues and montages to tell the story it's it's a it's a it's got a lot of pacing issues and it kind of feels like a four-hour epic that's been edited down to two hours hashtag release the lynch cut yes <laughs> <laughs> i feel tired just even joking about it um i mean there is some deleted scenes and a fan edit out there so okay. i hear the fan edit is good if you want to go check out a better version of this movie. okay and the uh, the other thing is just the way the events progress it feels more like oh this has to happen because it was in the book as opposed to this has to happen because of the natural progression of events in the story of this film yeah which i i feel I... like is sometimes a trap that adaptations can fall into particularly adaptations of novels that's one thing is I, I don't think David Lynch is especially suited to adapting other people's work. And because he's a very subconscious filmmaker, he likes having the ability to do whatever he wants. So he, it almost feels like his imagination is occasionally a little restricted by Dune, which is a weird sentence to say. Yeah, and the and I mentioned this earlier, but the, the big thing, um, as I said with the pacing, is that it feels like it takes more time for less things to happen compared to the new one where it's like i i'm i'm i feel like i was way more like checking my checking my phone for the time and just checking this all right how long does this fucking movie have left because did you watch this on your phone no i didn't watch it on my phone i was watching it on my tv i was look i checked my phone david lynch watching a movie on your phone clip i didn't watch it on my phone though now if you're playing the movie on a telephone you will never in a trillion years experience the film you'll think you have experienced it but you'll be cheated it's a such a sadness that you think you've seen a film on your fucking telephone get real 
felt longer. I could feel the length. I could feel like, oh my god, there are so many other things I could be doing with my time. It's it's because I feel like the structure isn't really there. Yeah, it's a it's a structure. Again, it doesn't feel like it has a structure on of its own. It feels like it yeah. has a structure of this happened in the book, so therefore it has to happen. Um, Say what you will about 2021 yeah. Dune being sort of incomplete, but it definitely has a beginning, middle, and kind of More of a end. structure of its own. And I will, yeah. you know, I, I gave, you know, when my uh, initial, you know, review, I did sort of one criticism I had of the new one was that it felt like a bit heavy on exposition, but I will oh, definitely God. cut them some slack after watching this movie <laughs> what, what i think is weird is that on one hand there is a lot of exposition but on the other hand there's stuff that's never explained that like awesome. why there's the weird heart thing in the harkonnens place or why there's this hallucination of a hand or, or what the, what fuck the is... dripping water means or why Which, the you know cat that's all lynch stuff um... <laughs> it's interesting because lynch is not a director that likes explaining things he likes for you to come up with your own interpretations he does like a, a definite structure and plot for you to understand what's happening this is dune <laughs> This is Dune. You kind of need to know everything that's happening. And also, with the abstractions that happen, it almost occasionally feels a little too abstract and disconnected from the things the characters are going through. Like, it feels I'd like... It, it almost feels like, at various points in filming, David Lynch himself got high on some space weed. It was just like, what if we put in a weird cat? What if we, <laughs> what if we put in a... <laughs> I mean, I, I bet, honestly, that... I, probably did happen minus him getting high because he doesn't get high he tra he's a believer in transcendental meditation which so getting high without sit drugs <laughs> right right so he sits down at a keyboard or a typewriter and he just meditates until an idea comes to him basically and that's how he writes everything okay uh so yeah this movie is not as good as the new one They're nowhere near as good as the new one <laughs> All right, All and right. we're back, and we're going to yeah. be talking about the 2021 version of Dune, directed by Denis Villeneuve. Denis Villeneuve, Timothy, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> starring <laughs> Timothy Chalamet from uh, that gay movie, and Rebecca Ferguson, Oscar Isaac, Stellan Skarsgård, Dave Bautista. All the people you like that you've heard of from one at least one other thing, they're in and this David movie. And David Dalsmalchian. And David Dalsmalchian. Remember him? He was in the Ant Man movies and There's the Suicide Javier Squad. Bardem, Jason Momoa. Moa. There's lots of people lots in this of, movie. Of people. And Josh Brolin. And Zendaya for all of ten minutes. <laughs> yes. So Can you believe I still plot. can't believe how much they played up Zendaya in the marketing and including having her do buddy buddy uh promo stills with Timothy Chalamet as if she was a co lead and then she's only in ten minutes of the I mean, it, it makes sense if you actually know the book. I, mean, I wasn't yeah. expecting her to be in a lot of it, honestly. I mean, I, I, I kind of, like, I, I don't... I read the book in high school. Right. And I read it... So, and, so I read it nine years ago. So I don't really remember most of what mm -hmm. happens in it. So with the way they were playing up today in the marketing, I figured she was going to be in more of the movie. So the movie starts yeah. with this like really crazy Sardaukar uh, like throwing voice are chant. messages from the deep, and then yes. the logos happen over this yes. sweet, sweet Arrakis percussion. The score in this movie, Mwah. 
You know, the I know- sound design in this movie is so immersive and amazing, and I love it. And I'm so sorry, Hans Zimmer, that I ever doubted you. <laughs> I was gonna I say, take I- back everything that I've ever said, Hans Zimmer. This is the like, most beautiful I- shit I've ever. I heard know in my you've life. given a lot of shit to Hans Zimmer, but I feel like even you gotta give him credit. This is some. Fucking- this is his best this- soundtrack. <laughs> Honestly, this is his yeah, best soundtrack. Probably. I mean, like. It's, it's, it's definitely his most varied. It's yeah, it's definitely its most varied. It's probably still got a ways to go before it could be considered like most iconic, but like overall best, yeah. It's his most ambitious work ever, in my opinion. Yeah, it's also mo- Denis most Villeneuve's likely. most ambitious work. Um, yes. <laughs> so, like Dune 1984, Dune 2021 starts about 20 minutes before the first chapter of the book. Yeah, because um, because there's a okay correct me if i'm wrong but the there is a there is a relatively extensive prologue in the book before the first chapter right no there isn't no there is a little thing by princess erlin that's basically every chapter starts with an excerpt from a in-universe text because after paul muadib uh married princess erlin just for political reasons to become the emperor uh, he, she then just started grifting off of his messiahhood and writing <laughs> lots of books about him to get, oh. to make money. <laughs> oh, okay. Even though their marriage is completely loveless. <laughs> Besides that, no. So the book starts exactly with uh, Paul being woken up for the Gam Jabbar test. That's where the book starts. Oh. Um, so yeah, and then it's twenty two thousand years in the future, and we get this one scene where. Him and his mother are eating breakfast. And yeah, she well, it does him. actually. It does actually start off. You know, I I mentioned her being only in ten minutes and ten ten minutes of the movie, but it does actually start off with Zendaya's character. Right, because we get the uh, Fremen versus the Harkonnen imperialist. Yeah, and uh, I like that we get this conflict scene. from the indigenous perspective. Yes. I think that's a. I think that's you know a really really. Co- I don't know if "cool" is the right word in this context because you know it's a. Well, horrible, it's an important like, shift in gen- perspective, I think. Yeah. It, and in a way, it modernizes the story from being particularly from the point of view of Paul and the Atreides family to also being from the Fremen point of view. Yeah, because, you know, when you look at it from a modern perspective, the original Dune is kind of a story that paints the colonizers as the good guys. <laughs> like, Well, I wouldn't really say that because the colonizer... So the Atreides come in, and they are would-be colonizers. Then they get displaced. That's true. At which point they basically adopt the customs and ways of the people. That is And true. by yes. doing that, lead a successful rebellion against the imperialists. That is, that, yeah, that is a fair yeah. point. But, I, I, but regardless, I do think that framing this more from the Fremen's perspective is a nice way of adding more nuance to the story. Yeah, I mean, I think the anti-imperialism bent of Dune was always there. I mean, it's written by, it's written by a shroom hitting hippie. Yeah, it's it's more explicit and nuanced now because you know, Frank Herbert may have been a, you know, a a shroom a shroom spewing hippie, but he was also you know, a a, a guy who lived in the the fifties like, and sixties and sixties and, 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 and did not like his gay son. Yeah, I was gonna say it was really homophobic. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. Duke Leto of House Atreides, ruler of the ocean planet Caladan. We know the story. So we then we get the scene where Paul basically he has these dreams of Zendaya and their I mean who wouldn't stuff. dream of Zendaya? I'm alright, boys can't relate. But so then what happens is they have this Well more I should say more I should say more am I right 
people who are attracted to women. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so then we have this scene between Paul and his mother, and where she instructs him how to use the voice, and she's like, "Oh yeah, I, re- I really like the water." And I really like how they introduce the voice here, and I also like how they utilize the voice. They do like this weird throaty, like overlapping voice thing, and it like is all encompassing. Like if you listen to it in the theater, it's like all across your head. It's like whoa, crazy. Because the way that the voice works is it's a Bene Gesserit technique that they developed over thousands of years to basically command people to do whatever they want by it's sort of like firing basic, off neurons in their brains in the right way. Like basically, like to, in layman's terms, it's basically like a Jedi mind trick, except you can control anyone. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And she says, oh, we need you to get ready for the Imperial person the imperial messenger yeah because they're to gonna have the the ceremony and right, then and he they... has to go into a ceremonial garb and timmy looks pretty pretty dank in that ceremonial he looks garb. pretty dank and he and the ceremony comes out and i want to point it out so josh brolin uh who's gurney in this movie um he's great uh, all of the ship designs in this movie are so fantastic and oh, so yes. cool and yes. i love them so much so the emperor people come out and i love how they have like all this like really weird like space suits on like they're like white and gold imperial yeah. garb and i think that's so cool guy takes out a giant ass scroll <laughs> yeah like yo it's like if, the fucking scene get, from shrek 2 <laughs> yeah, you, you get arrakis now and then i like how they flesh out duke leto a little bit and the house atreides because we get more of an idea of what the Atreides culture is because in the book, the house Atreides, it certainly has a code of honor, which is called Canley. Um, but in this, we get a very clear, distinct, we're the good guys. And we're Duke Leto. When he says there is no call, we do not answer. And I think that Duke Leto played by Oscar Isaac in this is so good. He's so good. Fucking Oscar Isaac. Give that man. Give that give Oscar his Oscar. Do it. Hashtag. Hashtag give Oscar his Oscar. Um, And and it's just night and day when you compare it to the 80s version where basically Duke Leto is like a non-entity in that version. Yeah. I mean, a lot of characters are non-entities in the 80s version. (laughs) Like... Yeah. And then they they have a scene where they walk and talk Paul and Oh, yeah. Because I love the relationship between... Uh, well, I love a lot of character relationships in this. Like, I love the relationship between Paul and uh, du- the Duncan Idaho. A lot like, of that is taken from his relationship with Gurney Halleck in the book. But he also has a relationship with Gurney Halleck, which I yeah, think is fun. he does. Yeah. Um, and because the, the I, stuff I, with I, Duncan, a lot of that is elevated, of course, by the by Jason Momoa's performance. Right. Because Jason Momoa can just bring just bring so much charisma. And so since Duncan Idaho does. was basically the Boba Fett of this series, we we're now giving him a lot more to do. Yeah. <laughs> and, and because um, it's Jason Momoa, now he's actually cool. <laughs> right. So Duke Leto is walking with Paul and he's like, yo, we, we got to get desert power. All right. We got to get yo, all these Fremen here. We had power and we had air power. Now we, we got to get desert, desert power. power. I think that's awesome. And, and we're going to work with the work with the Fremen. And Paul's yes. like, but what if I can't be the Messiah? But what if I can't do the thing? And he's like, "Don't worry. It doesn't matter if you if you can do the thing or not, because you you're all, you're still my son. And I love you." <laughs> Aww. <laughs> yeah. So then what happens is should we get the J- Gamjabar scene, and I love 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 the headdress that Mo- that the Reverend Mother Mohim is wearing. It's like this really stark, really tall headdress. 
And there's a lot of like shots in this movie where I'm like, oh, Denis Villeneuve, are you really bringing out the Renaissance painterness on me right now? Because like the shot composition is so good. Yes. Especially uh, there's one shot composition scene that I want to talk about later, but that's the scene where when Oscar Isaac's character is basically passed out in the chair and it looks like it's like some like renaissance painting of jesus there, yeah there's a lot of like very like and this is gonna sound like an insult when it's actually a compliment like there's a lot of shots that remind me of like matte painting ralph mccrory yes. star wars concept art oh and i God, mean that yes. in the best way possible for the record like it looks like somebody got a very imaginative concept artist like Denis, like talked to him, and I'm assuming this is what happened. And then he like wrote it, drew it out, and he's just like, "That's perfect. I'm gonna make the shot look exactly like." I'm gonna that. put this in the movie. <laughs> it's gonna be great. Because Denis Villeneuve wanted to make this movie for a long time. It was just a question of when he felt like he was ready to make when it. The, and also when he, when a studio was gonna give him money for an idea that sounds on paper like a financial disaster waiting to happen. <laughs> then we get to the other amazingly improved thing in this film which is the baron harkonnen oh yes yes and i adore this performance from stellan skarsgård and i love how they 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 integrated his fatness in a way that wasn't just gross like he is gross but in another way he's very menacing yeah because it's 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 disturbing the way in which he is gross and that gives him a menace because he's like in a in this weird tube thing and he's basically a being that is nothing but neck fat almost yes. like <laughs> well that's because they integrated the the thing that uh is in the books i forget what it's called it's called like suspenders the suspenders that help him basically uh fly around and stuff and of course david lynch's dune made that look really fucking silly yeah <laughs> and in this movie they actually made it look really intimidating which is crazy yeah <laughs> <laughs> also uh dave batista is here um, I yes, wish he was in a bit. They basically, they they basically morphed uh, Rabin and Fade Rotha's yeah, character. Yeah, people into are one wondering character. if like because I know they they borrowed elements of Fade Rotha for um, this version of. I, I'm sorry, what was Dave Batista's character's name? Uh, Robin. Robin. Robin is his nephew. Robin. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I I know they said they merged elements of Fade Rotha, but I I I know there's still some speculation that they might bring the actual Fade Rotha in for part well, two. If they bring in Fade Rotha, I mean, then they would have to move around some things in the plot. But, I mean, besides that, Rabin still becomes the governor of Arrakis once they get, you know, ganked. Does that mean Dave Bautista will get to do more things in the second one? Because I hope he gets to do more things in the second one. (laughs) Well, in this one, he's kind of a shouty exposition man. Like, Like, why are we doing the thing? He's like, why are we doing the... Why did we let them take away our, our birthright? And then he just disappears from the movie for a very long stretch of time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Although I do think that if you were going to cast anyone as Rabin, I think he's a fantastic... No, I think uh, he's great casting. I just wish wish he was in more of the movie because I like Dave Bautista. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I love the scenes on the planet Caladan because it's basically like... It's an atmosphere that's really oceanic, but it's, in a way, it's very alien. Because it feels there's these like tops. Yeah, because it feels like um, and, and there's like these really thick layers of cloud. It's uh, almost it's it's kind of like tops. It's kind of like being in Maine in autumn. Yeah, if that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's just like it's it's almost like an Earth that looks more compressed and more wet. And I really yes. think that's interesting. 
Um, but besides that, we get these amazing spacing guild ships. And I love the scene where uh, they're talking about the spacing guild. And one of them is just like, hey, what do you think the guild travelers, guild navigators look like? And they're like, nobody fucking knows, no, Paul. Nobody fucking knows, Paul. <laughs> Idiot. So yeah, he, he spars and then there's like book, there's like dialogue that's from the book and it's very good. Yeah, I also, that, I like the look of the, the shields in this where they're kind of like these, it's like a second skin kind of. Well, like, yeah, and I like how they actually integrated the whole the slow blade penetrates the shield thing, which it was always the hardest. Yeah, part because to now adapt. they like vibrate. Right. Um, so basically, the way that combat works in the Dune universe is that you move quickly on defense and you move slowly on the offensive. Basically, they figured out a way to make guns obsolete. Yes. So that they, I mean, I mean, a lot of it is because Frank Herbert just wanted to do sword fights instead. But like, it's. it's but it actually makes sense because you know, laser blasts go very fast, and fast things don't penetrate the the shield. Only slow things do. Right. And I think that's very interesting the way they integrate that to the fighting style. Like you'll see in Duncan Idaho has one scene where he like has to like slowly go in for somebody's throat. I think that's a lot of. I fun. mean, it is weird to me that uh, that you know. I mean, it is a little odd when you think about you know like twenty two thousand years in the future they couldn't make a force field that can block slow and fast things. Well, but you know the whatever. Thing is they need some way to be able to kill someone, so it's kind of like a mutual agreement thing. I think. Ah, the, the rules of warfare. Okay. Yes, Canley. <laughs> <laughs> so uh in in reality shadam intends to have house harkonnen stage a coup to retake the planet with of the course we know of course troops. i think at, at this point in the plot we don't really know that yet like well no we have the scene where we go to seleucus secundus oh yeah that's right well they kind of we have the throat singing imperial guard that goes whoa yeah i love that guy i do I know it the, is uh, I, it is treated that. as a little bit more of a twist in this version as compared to like the 80s version or the book where they basically tell you what's going to happen in yeah, the second chapter. <laughs> because it's because it's more like especially cuz it's a massive reveal to to mm -hmm. them to right. to to Atreides. Yeah. And they kind of know already that they're moving into a trap, but you know, Duke Leto being a smart guy, he's been laying the groundwork of a plan to try and stage off any rebellion or t any invasion and that's the desert power plan which yes. he sadly does not get the chance to really work on fully before he's betrayed by yui we should yeah. talk about yui because yui is a scene yeah yui uh, is early on. <laughs> i think yui is pretty cool i think they did him pretty well you know he's not uh that important of a character I he, mean, he, he's here um he's pretty yeah, good he's here and they brought together with the whole backstory with wana in a way that isn't ridiculous like the 80s version <laughs> yeah so that's fun um and i i was very disturbed by the line where they say that wana's being taken apart like a doll oh yeah they do say that and i was like what the fuck <laughs> oh my god so let us concubine lady jessica is an acolyte of the bene Gesserit, and we get this one other cool scene which is basically a truncated version of the scene uh, that's from the book where the Reverend Mother Mohim has a conversation with Jessica about the fact that she failed to have daughters. Yeah. I think I, the I, scene's I, also very good because you get to see on Lady Jessica's face like the heartbreak and the and the conflict between her love for the Duke and her loyalty to the sisterhood. And she, you see how like broken up she is that she's basically betrayed the sisterhood. I also like how the Reverend Mother is more like she, she's less like of, uh, you know, like a very uh, stuffy like you must do this and blah 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 and more like kind of a petty bitch 
like so much potential wasted on a male. <laughs> like... <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the Reverend Mother Mohim in the book is also a little bit more interesting because she regrets what she does also because when Lady Jessica has this conversation with her and she's chastising her and then she leaves, she can see that there's a there's a tear in Reverend Mother Mohim's eyes. Like, either she was super disappointed in her or she feels guilty for having to say it. It's never really explained why she cried after the end of that conversation. But it's an interesting thing in the book that's not an either adaptation. Uh, so Reverend Mother Mohim is a lot of fun, and I really enjoy the, especially the art design and like the 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 costuming in this movie is so good. Yes, it's so good. We should talk about the Spacing Guild. I love how their giant ships are just like these caverns, like these cylindrical donut caverns. Yeah, because they because they have the like the the cylinders for the Spacing yeah. Guild. There's like the the dragonfly uh, ornithopter the ornithopters. Ships. Now, um, I love the ornithopters because when I was reading the book as a, as a teenager, I was like, I can't picture the ornithopters because I kept pic- picturing a, a helicopter. And then when I saw the ornithopters, I was like, oh my god, that makes so much sense. They look like dragonflies. Yeah, that's great because I, love, so awesome. I love how they have that and then uh, they like just have the Jawa Sandcrawler. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's kind of... <laughs> Which I just I just find it really funny that we have these like really weird and out there ship designs, and then the Sandcrawler is just the same one from Star Wars. Well, I think that really shows the divide between you know there is the working no, I, class I, I agree. in this I universe. Think, I think it, I yeah I think the divide works in the within the context of the film itself. It's just it, right. it, it's a it's a it's a, it's because, a coincidence I find funny. Um, uh, with with the descent back to feudalism in the Dune universe, they've also kind of resorted back to mercantilism, where all ec- economics is basically supplied and benefiting the different governmental bodies with the you know basically the house harkonnen would basically enrich themselves and would only do things economically that would benefit them there's no there's no free market economics in the dune universe yeah that's that's true (laughs) uh so what happens then is they they land down on Dune. They land on Arrakis, and I will say the when they're arriving to Arrakis, the the shot of the planet against the black of space. Oh my god, I love gorgeous. it. Gorgeous. So I love how all of this movie looks. I was a little worried that it would be look a little desaturated when I saw the trailer. Yeah, but then especially I realized, the first trailer was yeah. very much like turn down the desaturate turn the desaturation filter to the lowest setting possible but then i realized this is all part of like an integrated visual aesthetic that is based entirely off of how arrakis would look if you lived there yeah (laughs) like a lot of natural browns and oranges and grays and stuff like that but at the same time it is it is very bright when it needs to be Yes, it's stark. It doesn't look like it's artificially been darkened. Like the desert is very striking um, yes. when we when we first when land we on the there. planet. Mm. Oh, I also love Thufir Howitt. We see in the we get introduced to him in the Imperial scene, and he does this like he, he rolls his eyes back up into his head, and he does like these calculations. I love I love that. I love yeah, that. that's so great. that's great. Um, so then uh, Paul sees that Duncan's here, and he's like, "Hey, Duncan! Hey, Duncan! Hey, Jason Momoa! How you doing?" <laughs> He's like, I've been seeing these visions of the future, and then Duncan's like, "Hey, bro, don't worry, I'm not gonna die." I wink, also, wink. I also like the joke where it's like, where 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 Duncan is like, "Hey, it looks like you put on some muscle." Wait, really? No, <laughs> no. Like, Paul is a is a is a twink. stick figure in all versions of this story. <laughs> yes. 
so he he's having these prescient dreams and he's starting to train and looking through these different books on Arrakis and that's how we get some lore dumps. Yeah, which and, is a way, much better way of handling the exposition. Right. <laughs> and you'll notice that in one of them he looks through looks at a small mouse. That is a desert mouse and that is also called Muad'Dib, which is what he's going to be called later on. Oh. Fun fact. For, for and sure. that's when the hunter seeker comes out, the little drone killer thing. And I just love the the visual style when he's like hiding behind the projection and like there's these white light all over his face. I think it's such a brilliant, beautiful shot. And Denis Villeneuve deserves all of the Oscars and I will fight people. I mean, here's the thing. He deserves them. But let's face it, the the Oscar, the the award is going to go to some period drama about France or whatever. Before it goes to the... <laughs> so yeah, he he's able to. He defeat... might get something for visual effects. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So shout out Mapes, the uh, the you know the uh, handmaiden that was chosen by Lady Jessica early in the movie comes in, and that distracts the hunter seeker for just long enough so that Paul can destroy it. And then I love the scene where Duke Leto is talking with Gurney Halleck. And Gurney is like, I'm not fit to be in command anymore because of this. And then Duke Leto is like, dude, I don't give a shit about your honor. Yeah. Right? You have a job to do. Yeah, I want you to do your fucking job. Fucking Josh Brolin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, <laughs> so House Atreides, they arrive at Arakeen. All this stuff happens. Leto then negotiates with the Fremen chieftain Stilgar, and I love this scene because uh, we get the gift of Stilgar's moisture where he spits at him, and obviously Duke Leto doesn't know what this means <laughs> for a split second. And then uh, Duncan is like, thank you for your gift of your body's moisture. And then he spits, and then Oscar Isaac spits. <laughs> I think that's fun. Yes. Um, and then what happens after that is... They meet up with the planetologist, Dr. Liet Kynes, who's gender flipped in this version. I think that's a lot of fun. Yeah, there's a few, I think, from what I understand, there's a few, like, you know, they, they, you know, they're not, they're more loose with the race and gender of specific characters. Uh, Yeah, I mean, Liet Kynes, like, there's no reason why she couldn't be a woman. (laughs) I mean, Liet Kynes is not an especially gendered character. (laughs) I mean, it's... Light kinds to begin with is already kind of a minor character that isn't that important to the story. But like, but, but Brian, but Brian, it was a man in the book and a woman in the movie, and therefore it's too political. Oh, that's not true. <laughs> but Light kinds actually yeah. does become important in the sequel novels because that Lia they Kynes... probably won't get to except for Dune Messiah. Right, Light kinds whole deal is that he slash she they wanted to terraform the planet Arrakis before they went rogue and they went basically native. So the plans that Liet Kynes had to basically turn Arrakis into a water-rich paradise actually do come to fruition in Dune Messiah and Children of Dune. Ah, so they might touch on it in the movies a little bit. Right. So then Kynes informs Leto, Paul, and Halleck of the dangers of spice harvesting, including the giant sandworms. The giant worms. I it was an Alaskan bulwark. Yes.
which travel under the desert. And I, I love the part where Duncan is showing all the different equipment and he shows like the, this one uh, paracompass. And the paracompass basically is an extremely complicated piece of uh, technology because both of the moons have magnetic poles. And I think that's a really interesting sci-fi thing that's actually accurate. Yes. You would need a very bizarre device to figure out north yeah that um, that is that is really cool i also the, like um i'm kind of curious as to your thoughts of you know yeah. after duncan has been like living amongst the fremen when he comes back uh he doesn't have his beard they he shaved the beard I'm like what do you, what jason momoa without that beard though <laughs> Fre- clean what? shaven jason momoa though <laughs> it's kind of weird that he he shaved off the beard did he have the beard when he left no, because he, yeah, he had the beard when he left, and then presumably he shaved it while he was. I'm assuming with that the might friend. just that might be uh, an accurate thing because he probably got like it probably fucked up with his beard to wear this the still suit with the covering over the face. I'm assuming, yeah, or maybe he just had a different job and ended up <laughs> shaving his beard. I don't know. Well, I mean, he, he I mean, well, Jason Momoa, uh, uh, I mean, he's keeping the beard for Aquaman. So, right like he, so Kynes, he shaved the beard specifically for this <laughs> like so yeah during a flight they spot a sandworm approaching an active spice harvester with a stranded crew and leto and his team rescue the workers and i love the scene where paul basically goes outside and he starts having these spice visions because the spice is everywhere on arrakis yeah it's in the food it's in the water what water there is it's in the sand you basically cannot live on arrakis and not get spiced okay which is why it is a bit strange that this version doesn't really have any tripping balls scenes it like does it does there, there the, are dream the visions. scenes i mean are, there are dream are visions. tripping balls there are dream visions but I, I don't know i wanted more i wanted more like whoa man the color chris, <laughs> chris the dream visions are him tripping because it gives him prescient yeah but foresight. that's not as fun Okay, but it's not just that he can see the future; he sees possible futures. That's true. He okay. has again. I think we we talked about this in the eighties version. He, he yes. gets Garnet's future vision, basically. But this leads to like interesting things, like he sees the vision of him getting stabbed by Zendaya's character and stuff like that. These are futures that could be, and I think that's very interesting. Yes. Uh, so then they they're able to basically save all of the people, and we get to see our first sight of one of the worms and it looks yeah, we amazing get, we get a little hint of one of the worms uh yes they 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 they, they, they kind of cock tease the worms a little bit i'm not gonna lie like there were multiple well, yeah they, they lead see... up to the worms you they can't have all the, the worms worm. at once that's true because i was like yeah. when i saw this in the theater every time i saw like ripples of the sand i was like wormy boy wormy boy come on do it do it and i was waiting for it i was waiting for it the whole time and i remember <laughs> i remember my mom turned to me late in the movie um, cause she, she's a huge fan of the book and we saw the movie together. She turned mm-hmm. to me late in the movie when it was supposed to happen and, 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 she, and she was like, oh my God, watch, it's going to happen. He's going to ride the worm. And then it didn't happen. <laughs> well, he's going to ride the worm in part He's going to ride okay? the worm in the next one. I know, but <laughs> <laughs> so they, they see this and they, they help save the stranded crew on the, on the, uh, I lo- also love how they show the actual mechanical failure that happens that causes this ship to get stranded out in the middle of the dune sea yeah. whereas in the 80s version they're just like oh we should go help them and then they help them yes <laughs> so this scene ends with basically uh there's this great scene where he's tripping balls you see in the future and then paul says i notice your strides or something like that which is a callback to gurney halleck and because gurney halleck one of the first things he says to him is you know 
you shouldn't sit with your back to the door. And he says, anybody could replicate my footsteps. And he says, I know it would be your stride. Yeah, which so is that's also, a callback. which was in the, it was in the 80s version as well. And is in the book. It's a, it's a book dialogue yeah, thing. Yeah, book dialogue. Yes. So then after that, uh, Duke Leto is obviously very mad at him for fucking sitting out when there's a giant monster worm that was about to like, eat them. I don't care. Damn the spice. I want everyone <laughs> off that crawler now. <laughs> So after an attempt is made on Paul's life with the Hunter Seeker, Leto explains, places the soldiers on high alert, and then Sook Dr. Wellington Yua disables the Arakeen shields uh, and allows Harkonnen and Sardaukar yeah, troops then to overwhelm a the Atreides forces. And a bunch of things blow up. We get a cool guys don't look at explosions moment. Yes. Um, and how we first find out this is happening is Duke Leto happens upon the dead body of Shadow Mapes the handmaiden at which point he is then uh hit with a poison dart by uh wellington yua and of course yui is trying to save his wife wana yes and because ultimately the, failed bid to because save the her. harkonnens have, have have kidnapped his wife um and are taking her apart like a doll apparently, apparently. <laughs> and yua incapacitates leto and i love the way the scene is done because it's almost like a judas type scene uh, and that's kind of how it's portrayed in the books as well. Like when they mythologize in the chapter headers about the story that's going to unfold, they're like, oh yes, Wellington Yua, the betrayer. The betrayer. <laughs> so Wellington Yua explains to him about the false tooth and that how you need to bite down the tooth. And if he does well enough, two lives could be taken, both his own and the and Baron Harkonnen. And I just love this scene so much because it feels like in the 80s version it was really rushed yeah if it just sort anything, of happens if there's the anything this movie really like stretches out and like really gets better on even than the book it's fleshing out duke leto's character if there if there's one thing i can say about dune 2021 is that for good or ill it takes its sweet ass time. <laughs> yes. And Duke Leto, there's this constant visual metaphor going on in the symbolism of the film where they constantly refer back to the bullhead. And yes. the bullhead is symbolic because his father used to hunt bulls. And it's actually a, a thing that's in the book. It's one of the many things that's like mentioned as like, oh, yes, this is one of the artifacts. And Denny Villeneuve reading that was like, aha, I could use that as a visual symbol throughout the film to reference the father. Oh. Yes. And I love, love, love the scene of uh, how they lead up to the scene and basically the scene where he is basically naked in the table and Baron Harkonnen is gorging himself on food with Piter DeVries there. Yes. <laughs> Fuck Piter. Uh, Fuck Piter. Look and out, here comes the here comes the Piter man. <laughs> Baron Harkonnen slowly gets up and starts floating towards him. And then he says like a says something, mumbles, and he's like, Come closer. And then he comes closer and he puts on the shield and then he bites down and he shoots out the gas yeah he does the, the he does the toxic breath killing uh -huh. piter and everybody in the room and then i love i love the scene where basically the the they get like these detox guys that come in in like the these suits almost like there's been a nuclear explosion and they're like going in to try and keep themselves safe and they see up on the top of the ceiling twitching like an insect is <laughs> the baron harkonnen yes it's such an unnerving image and I love also the shot when they come in. There's just this gray shot of him with his arms back. It reminds me of the uh, the Renaissance painting of the man in the bathtub that's bled out. Oh, yeah. After writing his final moment. Uh, 
I love that painting and I just love the visuals in this movie. It's so artistic and so oh, every frame is a painting. So I adore good. this movie. So good. Yes. It's very good. Yes. So after all of that, uh, oh, we should also mention that Baron kills Yui. Yeah, Baron and kills he, like, Yui. The traitor was betrayed cuts, himself. Yeah. yeah, cuts his neck. And Yue has, of course, made a plan to save uh, Jessica and Paul because he is trying to work as a double agent against the Baron in this plot. You know, he wants to kill the Baron. Yes. And he wants to maintain the existence of House Atreides so that they can eventually rebel and retake Arrakis uh, when his heir, Rabin or Fade Ratha, would take over on Arrakis. Yes. Uh, and also, he kind of likes Paul in the book. Like, he feels really bad about all of this. <laughs> yeah, he's like, oh, this is, this is awkward. <laughs> yeah, like, he knows he has to betray these people that he loves. And he constantly feels like utter shit about it. Yes! <laughs> so in that way, he is also kind of like, if Judas knew he had to betray Jesus. If, if Judas was like, oh, hey, Jesus, buddy... I gotta betray you. I don't, so I don't know how to have like the, these conversations are always hard. Uh, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to stab you or, or poison. You. Do something. And you're gonna but because you had wants them to escape, he ends up putting some of their still suits on a on the ornithopter that they're kidnapped on, and he, they can tell that it's his because it has his imperial conditioning diamond on it. Hey. Yeah. I like that note. I think that's very cool. And that's from the book also. So Yui replaces one of Leto's teeth. We talked about this scene. And the Harkonnens capture Paul and Jessica and take them into the desert to die. And I like how Gieti Prime, the people on Gieti Prime are all portrayed to be like these bald monsters. Yeah, and I, I also like how it's it's they're very it's 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 a very clever form of horrible evil where they're because it's like, you know, we, we made a deal that, you know, no harm would come to Paul. It's like we're not harming Paul, but you know, Arrakis is Arrakis, so you know, we just leave him out in oh, the right. desert. We've got Let to nature the take Reverend, its course. You know, we've got we... to mention the Reverend Mother scene between her and her and the Baron, where he's like, I promise I definitely won't hurt Paul. Fingers crossed. Definitely. It is the thing. Like it is an actual binding promise. So like they they specifically can't hurt him. But if right. they just leave him in the desert to die. Yeah. It's like <laughs> You know, that's nature. That's nature killed him, not us. I'd also like to point out that I absolutely adore the few shots we get of Getty Prime. It looks like... It basically looks like the Blade Runner cyberpunk universe, but more industrial and mechanical. Yeah, it's like And, like, it's slowly rotted over time. It's like Blade Runner crossed with, like, the Death Star interior, like, crossed with, like, uh some other third it, thing <laughs> it, it, it looks like it just looks like a city and a place of pure evil <laughs> yes it it looks like you know man that man so this is where ea executives have their meetings and, yeah and before the scene with the reverend mother we'd like to point out my favorite little thing is the pet the weird black slug looking pet thing that has five arms. Oh yeah. That's just eating its food. It's and they're just like, oh there. look, it's a pet. It's a pet. <laughs> and I'm like, what is that? What is that? <laughs> and where can I buy one? <laughs> I want one. Are there plushies of it? <laughs> Basically, whenever I think this movie can't blow my mind and get me intrigued even more, it blows my mind and gets me intrigued even more because I want to know what the 
fuck that was. <laughs> uh, so the Harkonnens capture Paul and Jessica, and then Jessica's like, hey, you should use the voice. And then Paul's like, he tries to use the voice, and it doesn't work. And then she's like, you your pitch the wrong pitch, Your bitch. pitch was too forced. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So then they, it does finally work. And the reason why he's doing this is because one of the people is basically trying to threaten Jessica with, with sexual assault, uh, which is from the book. So don't add Denny on that. <laughs> um, and they overpower and kill their captors using the Bene Gesserit skill known as the voice as a means of controlling them verbally. And then they find the survival kit left to them by Yue, and then they go into the night. And yeah, because there's... They use their special uh, Fremen walking. Yeah, the Fremen. I love it. First, cause the first of all, I want to say I fucking love that goofy ass Fremen walk because because that it yes. has to go against the rhythm. So it looks it deliberately looks really fucking stupid, and I yes. lo- and I love it. Um, and the other thing I love is all right. So there's two things. One is when they land when they land on the surface at night. Paul has another prescient dream, and I'm like, wow. They really did get a lot of marketing material out of the 30 seconds of dream sequence wherein yes. Paul is wearing that armor. <laughs> like... But, I mean, it, it all is obviously foreshadowing stuff that is going to happen. Yeah, ever... Particularly when he sees a, a bloody holy war yeah, man, shouting his name. You think about... You ever you ever think about how Dune part... The, the most marketed moment of Dune Part 1 was a moment designed to set up Dune Part 2? Yeah, but Dune Part One is still one of the greatest movies ever made. Don't at me. Well, I mean, uh, I don't know if I would go that far. It's it's it's. A great I would movie, go that far. But um, this is about as I'll get to this later. But this is about as into something I felt since I've watched The Last Jedi or Guardians Two, <laughs> which means it has taken over my brain, and it now lives rent free in my head. Okay, that's, okay, that's fair. Okay. Yeah. So and I also, they... I guess, the other thing I was gonna say after the the <laughs> dream sequence is uh, the scene where, uh, well, when he has the dream where he confronts his mother about all this. You know, I see all this terrible things. You know, people fighting a war in my name, and she tries and it's like, no, you did this. You, you better just made me a freak. And he's like, it's, this is like, oof, because oh, I mean that is kind of the whole. That is kind of the whole rift that eventually develops between Paul and his mother, although they do kind of make it up a little bit afterwards, because Lady Jessica does care about her son, yeah. except in the third book, <laughs> but we'll maybe talk about that later. They, I don't think uh, they're going to cover that in the movies, so... So, uh, it, that, it is very interesting, because Paul has basically been unknowingly groomed from birth to be, be a to, messiah to be a without messiah. his knowledge or consent. And now, realizing that's what happened, he's like, I don't like this. I don't, I don't like, like this, this at all. all. This is terrible. <laughs> and I think Timothy Chalamet really brings the acting Tim- chops. Timothy Chalamet can be, really does sell it. Paul can be can be very reserved as a character, but when he freaks out at his mother, you really feel that, like, because everything has just gone wrong. I do remember, although I, I, although I will say, I do remember I, 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 when I saw this in the theater, when that scene happened, I did hear someone laugh. Timothy Chalamet has been very stoic for the for the for the rest of the movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that's not that's not how the scene's supposed to be taken. And I, I honestly don't see how anybody could take the scene that way unless you're just like not expecting someone to yell, and then oh my god, somebody yelled, and then I'm gonna laugh. Ah ha ha ha! 
But anyway, besides morons, this scene is really fantastic. Yeah, I do. I do think this scene is great. I'm just and saying I love how that's it takes a thing place that happens. This, I love how it takes place in the still tent, and and the tent. You'll notice that like there's this great shot where it's like red, and you can see the liquid going down the fibers, and that's like basically that's the tent getting the moisture that evaporates from their bodies oh. and keeping it inside. It's very cool. Oh, yeah, the that attention is cool. to detail is so great in this movie. So. The Baron hands over command of Arrakis to his brutish nephew, Rabin, and orders him to sell spice reserves. Oh, we should forget, we forgot to mention that the, the fight scenes in this movie are amazing. Yeah, the like, the action the action sequences, while few and far between, are are, are quite good. Um, I mean, they happen when they should happen. Yeah, I, uh, I know. I think they it's are just, fantastic. It's just that, you know, in a lot of... If he, I wonder how many people saw this because they were tricked into thinking it was an action movie. <laughs> Well, it's I knew better because I read the book. I well, I mean, I know, but you know, how many people actually read the? Because a lot of the, because a lot of the marketing was built on like him in the armor and the worms. Who and cares? I'm just saying. When you I, look I don't it in think the, the way that a tr- movie is marketed is is a reason to crit- crit- criticize it. No, no, no. I'm not saying it's like it's it's not the main lens of criticism. I'm just saying it's you know it's an interesting cultural observation you know when you when you think about it in terms of you know all the true worm heads out there knew it was up (laughs) i know but you know how much of the general audience does that represent so anyway uh paul and jessica are found by duncan and kynes and head to an old research station and are quickly tracked down by the sardaukar and i like the scene where kynes is talking with paul and paul's basically like i'm gonna make a play for the throne you know because i am the lisan al-ghib i am basically your messiah and then and then and then and then then, then they're just like you're an idiot Well, some of them are like you're an idiot, but she almost basically she, uh, uh, like she she, she does... almost convinces them. Yeah, you know, uh, and, but also you got to remember that the whole Lisan Al Gabe and uh, Mahdi and Muadib stuff is all stuff that the Bene Gesserit cargo culted like millions of years ago. That is also true, and that's how he's able to know that he can basically play on them like this. <laughs> uh, so anyway. They get ambushed, and then we get the scene where Duncan has his last stand, which is an amazing fight scene. Duncan's last stand. So good. Rest in peace, Duncan. Duncan. I'm sure they're never going to bring him back in any of the sequels. Well, because fans demand it. I mean, here's the thing. I feel because I I know what I know what you're alluding to, (laughs) but I feel like even if that didn't happen. He comes the, back twice. Yeah, I, yeah. I feel like if that, even if that didn't happen in the books, I feel like in the movies they'd probably find some excuse to do more scenes with Duncan Idaho because everyone loves Jason Momoa. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. But anyway, they they are able to escape the research station, and Duncan and various Fremen sacrifice themselves to allow Jessica, Paul, and Kynes to escape the facility. And I love Kynes' self sacrifice also because yes. Kynes is ambushed by the Sardaukar troops. And lures a sandworm that devours them all, and it's amazing. Yeah, and I love the sandworm design in this. I love the, how the sandworms look. I think they're. So I mean, they cool. do kind of look like big buttholes, but they. I no, they... I mean they're sandworms, Chris. Yeah, I know, but they, and they look amazing. They do look amazing, but they also kind of look like big buttholes. No, they're amazing, Chris. I agree I will with tolerate you. Tolerate no negativity. Look, here's the thing: movie. it's not a, it's not, it's not a criticism. It's an observation. Anyways, Paul and Jessica reach the deep desert and meet the Fremen. Among them, Stilgar and Chani, the girl from Paul's dreams. Oh, hi, Zendaya. I like how, I like how Chani is just 
so fucking done with all this shit. She's just like, okay, you're like some imperialist colonizer now. Sure, whatever. Right. I'm not totally not going to be into you and bear your twins and die in childbirth. <laughs> wow, totally that, not what's going to happen. <laughs> I mean, she is kind of she's bringing shades of you know it's it's not I, I I've I've seen at least one criticism where it's like oh she's just playing the same character from Spider Man. It's like no, it's no, but she is bringing shades of that, which is funny. Well, I mean, like so, Chani isn't an especially well developed character in Dune One. Uh, she gets more developed in Dune Messiah, where she basically is a lover of Paul Atreides and also doesn't really like all the politics and shit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Chani is a good girl. Uh, she's a really... So in uh, a way, because character. of that, because, you know, because of that perspective, it's, you know, it's at least a little similar, you know, obviously not exactly the same. Obviously. Well, also, I but... don't know how you could possibly make that statement considering the amount of screen time. Yeah, and I don't. Yeah, she has. I, I don't. Yeah, I disagree with the statement. My my favorite my favorite moment in this movie. Just kidding. It's not my favorite moment, but I do like it a lot. Just because I love how extra Jameis is in both the <laughs> novel and in this movie. Because he's just like this person's an outsider, and I want their I want their body's moisture. And then the Fremen are like, Janice, we don't have fucking time for this, yo. And <laughs> this then is the third is like, time I invoke the blah blah blah. <laughs> this is the fifth time you've invoked ritual combat this week, Janice. When are you gonna let this go? God. Never. Why do we even but hang out with you? <laughs> like In the book, if I remember correctly, Janice was a romantic interest that was supposed to be set up with Chani, I believe. And then Jamis is like, I don't like you. how close you're getting to this girl. And then Paul's like, we don't need to beef, bro. Because <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm cool with Stilgar. And don't then Stilgar is it. like, Jamis, you guys, you guys got to battle it out. I like how he also asks if he wants to yield. Yeah, um, because like they have the battle and like... And the friend like, are like, this is not dude, in our culture. You do not yield. <laughs> the is, fuck? This is, this is fight to the death, dude. Do you not know what the word death means? <laughs> I'd also like to point out that every uh, every Fremen in this universe canonically smells terrible <laughs> because they never bathe. Exactly. <laughs> they live in the uh, desert. Where are they yes. supposed to bathe? Well, exactly. There's a line where they say, what What do they say about the Fremen? To, to bathe, they throw sand on their ass. Yes. <laughs> so Paul ends up killing him reluctantly in a duel to the death. And against Jessica's wishes, Paul insists on joining the Fremen to fulfill his father's goal of bringing peace to Arrakis. So that's kind of where the movie ends. Just killed a man. <laughs> I put also, a knife I... against his chest. Then the stabbing did commence. <laughs> I like how they integrate the whole cargo cult thing a lot more organically in this than they do in the 1980s version. Because it's just more like a, a thing that comes up in conversation as they're like... Right. You know, because like, when they first land, ways. yeah, and like, and like when they first land on Arrakis, it's sort of like they're all chanting Lisa and El and they have this sort of conversation about the the myth they have about the Messiah, and it's like, and I was like, oh, like the Bene Gesserit and the Quizas because you know, yeah, you, you give the you, well, you gave that you gave that shit to them. <laughs> so I also like how the movie really draws on its Islamic influences for that sort of thing with the way that it portrays the worship and the, the like they see people with prayer beads and stuff like that. There's a lot of headdresses in this. And I feel like I've seen some discourse around this that's like they're appropriating this and it's like, well, yes. Yes. But, but also, Dune is a very appropriative novel. It's kind and of it's it's in, 
you know, to, it, to not portray it as Islamic would actually be to exclude those influences. Yeah, it's kind of like it's it, it's a it's complicated an thing. It's an appropriate novel, it was, so it's it's accurate right. to the source material. Of course, then you know there's a debate of well, if it, if it's already cultural appropriation within the text, should we adapt it at all? And you know that's a well, whole I mean, other layer of also. Dune and, takes place twenty two thousand years into the future, where basically all culture has been appropriated into one homogenous feudalistic nonsense that is also true <laughs> like there's the the major religious text in this universe is called the orange catholic bible yes and has nothing to do with jesus so yeah so that is yeah, also true my, my uh, opinion is that I, I and again i'm not a muslim so take what i say with a grain of salt my opinion is that i think it was done tastefully as well as it could have been done and i think the way that they shifted the narrative from being from mostly the atreides perspective to being about uh you know from the fremen perspective like they even add in a line where they're when stilgar first meets duke leto they say you are colonizers and imperials and paul's just like yeah He's got yeah, a point. that's true. And then Gurney just looks at him like, "You're not supposed to Dude, see that. You don't say that part out loud, man." <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I also like how Duke Leto's plan, which is true to the book, is not that he would colonize them, but, but he the, would work he with would work them. in tandem and respect them. Yeah, and, and he even is... like when they have the negotiations with the leader, he's like, "Look, right. I can't promise you I'll never go through the desert." Because, like, right. I kind of have to go through the desert to do my job. But, like, your, your sigils for... and stuff, yeah. your sacred village and everything, that is all yours. I'm going to leave that all alone because I respect you, man. Like, right. And he's like, I respect that you guys use the spice for, like, your hallucinogenic space or spice orgies spice and or religious practices. But I also need it. <laughs> because I also need it to, you know, because, because all of our spaceships rough. are powered by weed for some reason. Um <laughs> Because it folds space and time. Because it folds. I I know. I I know the <laughs> real reason for the. I know the real reason, but I just think it's funny that the ships are powered by wheat. <laughs> um. So most improved things from not just the the eighties version, but from the book, Leto, I think is greatly improved. Um, yeah. I think the Baron is a lot less of a cartoonish monster in this. He's still obviously evil he's very obviously evil but it's more he's got it's, kind of like he's not thinking about how he wants to do things with his nephew it kind of, <laughs> he feels like empire strikes back palpatine yes in a lot of ways Ooh, he would make a great asset you know that scene was actually played by a woman yeah yeah in the in the yeah. original in the original cut yes in the original cut, where they don't uh, edit in, where they don't uh, edit Ian in McDermott. Ian McDermott, <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I mean, Dune basically inspired Star Wars, yeah, in a lot of ways. Like, there's the one line. In I the think Denis Villeneuve, they... like in a recent yeah. interview, Denis Villeneuve like said something along the lines of, "In many ways, uh, Star Wars is a very interesting adaptation of Dune." <laughs> I mean, it's not wrong. Yeah, that's it's not basically that's not entirely off base. If you mix Dune and Flash Gordon. And you put them in a in a blender. Yeah, you you mix June and Flash Gordon and sprinkle in some Akira Kurosawa and throw it all into a blender. That's basically Star Wars. Yeah. Right. I mean, in the beginning of Star Wars, they even mentioned the spice mines of Kessel. That's true. Which is a, a line you might miss. Yeah, spice mine. Yeah, um, the spice mines of Kessel. Well, it's a line you might miss until you remember that they made backstory on it because Star Wars has to make backstory for everything. <laughs> Just like the Dune books. Exactly. So. Dune Part 1 is my favorite movie of the year, 
currently my favorite movie of the decade, which I know isn't saying a lot. We're only two years in. Uh, and and we and all and you know, twenty twenty barely counts as a year for movies. Um, this was my most anticipated movie, and it exceeded my expectations, and I love it. And anybody that says anything bad about it, I will fist fight. And also, I won't actually. That was a joke. Uh, and I think all the actors do amazing performance. I think the movie is just shot so beautifully. The music is fantastic. Oh my god. And all of the ways they introduce all the characters and the way they portray all the really lore-heavy stuff in ways that are actually fairly understandable. Like, my mom understood what was happening in this movie, which is not what they could be said about Dune 1984. Uh, I just think it's so well done, and I think it's such a fantastic movie. And I know some people are like, well, it's just, it's just a part one. It's just a part one. They haven't made the full story. It's like, okay, well, they're gonna make the full story. So, shut up. <laughs> and also, this movie works perfectly fine as a part one, even if, you know, it's obviously a part one. It ends on a place that I think is pretty understandable for the plot to end on for a part one. Chris, what do you think of the greatest movie of the of this decade? I mean, yeah, I think it was pretty good. <laughs> Well, you gave it a ten okay. out of ten. Yeah, I did, so. I did give it a ten out of ten. Um, I, I, I was, I was mostly joking. I, okay, here's the thing. I do think this movie is fantastic. Um, yes. I, 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 for for a lot of the same reasons uh, you have said, I think all of the cast is phenomenal. They play their roles very well. The set design, um, the the ship design, the, the, the costume design, you know, the cinematography, oh the shot God. composition. It's all the gorgeous. The worms. They're the great. sand compactors. The, sa- the sand compactor, all of that's great. And the, you know, the score. That mm-hmm. one pet thing. Fucking beautiful. The weird slug. Very good. Chef's kiss. Um, and, you know, I-, I like the character development and the world and, you know, the, the themes it's exploring. And, you know, I, I think all of that is really great. Um, if I it- What I will say, and please, please just hear me out. Don't. Send pitchforks at me, if I may. If I may, just offer up a, a, a counterpoint. Is that one? You know, I do think that there is something to be said. Of the story, does feel even though it works as a part one, I will say it does work as a part one. It does feel like I don't think I would be able to. I don't think I can fully, fully coalesce my thoughts on this movie until we have a part two. Until we have part two, and. The story is complete because the story isn't complete, and that's the point. I get it. It was it was it was split into two, intentionally. It, it, this is then this is part one, and you have to judge it as such. But at the same, you know, it's it's an incomplete unit of entertainment in the at the end of the day because it needs to have part two. And I you disagree. Don't have part I wouldn't two. say it's an incomplete unit of entertainment. I think you could very well enjoy this movie. And also look forward to the sequel while also being satiated Here's the for thing. a while. I don't know if I could fully enjoy... I, I feel like my opinion on this movie would have changed fairly significantly if, like, the Monday after, if the Monday after opening weekend they were like, actually, we're not going to make part two. Because I feel like at that point it's just like, oh, well, now none of this is going to get resolved. And... We we set up all that because a lot of this is set up and a lot of but this it is will get building. resolved and yes it will that's the and yes that is fair it it is going to but again I 
I feel like that does... Okay, I'm trying to gather my thoughts here. I'm sorry, because I'm just trying to, you know, just offer my perspective on it and that it feels like I'm missing a part of the story. And yes, we're going to get that. We're going to get there. I know that. But I feel like we're in a kind of situation where, like, Lord of the Rings fans were in when Fellowship yeah. of the Rings came out. And, and we were like, okay... The first one was really good. Now let's wait for see where the where the story goes. And don't don't at me, people on Twitter saying, "Well, it's actually three books." Lord of the Rings was originally one novel that was then arbitrarily split into three books. And, so and don't don't at me. Which is uh, funnily enough, the reverse happened with Dune. Exactly. It was originally three books, book. and then it was uh, merged into one. And mm-hmm. uh, while I do think it is one of the it, one of the best movies of the year, it is currently in my top ten. I don't know if it'll stay there, but it's currently there. Um, there are some movies I like I liked better. Please I'm- don't say Godzilla vs Kong. Yes. <laughs> no, Godzilla vs Kong is not better than Dune. I'm sorry. It's just how I feel. You don't well, have to agree with me, but have you considered that you're wrong? <laughs> I have, and I've decided I'm not. <laughs> I've, I've, we've done a thorough investigation into ourselves, and we have found ourselves innocent. <laughs> yes, exactly. So yeah, Dune Part 2, I'm so hyped to see how they adapt the second part. In, in 2023, opening the same weekend as Paw Patrol 2. <laughs> I have a fan cast. You want to hear my fan what cast? What is your fan cast? So, my fan cast for... The Emperor Shaddam the Fourth, and I, I this 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 might be a little interesting. Patrick Stewart. Oh, you bring back Patrick Stewart. Bring to back play Patrick the Stewart. Go the metal angle. I, I don't know. I don't know how people. He would, would play a great emperor. He would probably be very good. I just don't know how people would respond to that, given the the, the first one. Because uh, fun fact, so my mom, as I just met, as I mentioned, is a massive Dune fan, and funnily enough. She, when we, when we saw the movie, because we went to the Thursday night uh, preview screening, after the movie ended, she was like, so when are they making part two? So when is part two coming out? And I had to be like, I don't know, because they haven't announced it yet. <laughs> and she was like, well, why did they make part one without knowing whether we're going to get part two? And I was like, I don't know. I don't Sometimes know. Sometimes take a chance. Ask Denis Villeneuve. <laughs> um so and Denis- and the other and the and further further to the point is uh i have never seen my mom get more angry at a movie than i have whenever i bring up the 80s version of dune because she like hates that movie and is like oh i didn't feel like i was stuck to the novel at all it was horrible storytelling it was a terrible terrible movie and like it's not that bad i mean like i didn't like it but even i'm like wow okay (laughs) so yeah uh another idea of fan casting uh the emperor Another fan cast for the Emperor, Idris Elba. Ooh. As the Emperor. That'd be fun. I like that. Yeah. Oh, you know what? Oh, oh, I just thought of a good one. Mm-hmm. Werner Herzog. Werner Herzog. Werner Herzog. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they're going to be able to get them. So anyway, yeah. Doom Part 1 is an amazing, wonderful, fantastic movie. It basically lives rent-free in my brain. It's why I've started rereading the Dune franchise, and I love it so much. And I would marry it if yeah. I could. Yeah, it's a really good movie. <laughs> so what are we doing next all, week, Chris? You should all uh, see it in, in theaters. Um, especially because you probably won't, because uh, it's it's technically leaving HBO Max this month, so you won't actually be able to watch it on streaming. You need to buy it on Blu-ray. Very long. You need to buy it on, buy the 4K 
steel book um oh my that'll God. have uh little uh little trading cards in it <laughs> uh, so chris what are we doing next week? yeah so next week we are uh we are playing a bit of a we are playing a bit of a game of catch-up um because we because believe it or not we we occasionally actually try to be at least semi-relevant so next week uh next week is a marvel week for us um uh, believe it or not not what if, um, because we we've been covering because we've been covering the Disney Plus shows up to this point. And this this but this time we're actually going to talk about some Marvel movies. You know the main part of the franchise because we are talking about the long-awaited Black Widow solo movie that released hmm. this past summer. Um, and we are also I heard the word solo movie and I, I had flashbacks to solo. No, that's and, not what I mean. And and I started dying. That's not what I mean. And also solo was fine. Um, no. <laughs> Uh, and uh, we are also, of course, going to be talking about Shang Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. So, ten rings? Why not eleven? What were they thinking? Because they're only they're 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 ten because they were they're it's a it's a nice even number. Yeah, and then after that, we're gonna have another rocket ship roulette episode. Yeah, but we're not we're not talking about that. So look forward to <laughs> Black Widow and and Shang Chi next week. Some marvelous. It'll be a marvelous good time. Anyways. Chris, where can they find you? This has been Hipster and the Nerd, and we do this every week. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, pretty much all your major podcast platforms. Please leave us a nice uh, five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on Spotify as well as engage in with the polls and the Q&A. No one's answered any Q&As yet, and it makes me sad. <laughs> I answered a Q&A once. Oh, you did? Yes. Okay. I, I'll have to. Lo- I'll have to look it up. Uh, okay. Um. And uh, and vote in the polls and uh do all that. Do all the engagement thingies and uh, spread the word on social media. Share it with all your friends um, and and relatives. Hashtag uh, hipster and the nerd. Help us grow the show. Uh, we very much appreciate it. Uh, I am Chris Hanna. You can find me at meganerd98 on Twitter and on Letterboxd. You can find my WordPress page, Mega Nerds Musings, which will be updated eventually. Will it though? Uh, I don't. I don't know anymore. But probably, <laughs> <laughs> probably eventually, I'll probably write something there eventually. And you can find me on the Toh Musical Project uh, Discord server, where I'm part of a group of very awesome Owl House fans putting together an original musical episode of the show. Although to be clear. This is a different project from the Owl House fan musical that Joriah Kwame, the writer of Little Miss Perfect and Ordinary, recently put out. And you should all go listen to that if you haven't, because it's great, but it's a different thing from what we're doing and what I'm involved in, to be clear. Because I know there was some, because I saw some people on the Discord who were confused and thought that this was the Joriah Kwame version. It's not. It's a different thing. But... That one is also very good. Anyways, um, so you can find me on that on that Discord server as well. Anyways, Brian, uh, where can they find you? You can find me on Tlilaxu, training with the face dancers in order to infiltrate the Atreides. Or you can find me on Twitter at Brian Brecker, or you can find me on Letterboxd at bbreck2. I'm going to finish the movie Disaster Movie tonight, oh God. so I'll probably post a review of that tonight for my Bottom 250 project where I review the worst rated movies on Letterboxd. Please help me. <laughs> uh, besides that, you can find me on Facebook. No, please don't. It's actually called Meta now. 
Shout no, out no, to no, no, Zuck. No, the, the, actually, Brian, the, the social media page is still called Facebook. It's the company in general that's called Meta. Shout out to the Zuck. The Zuck, you suck. <laughs> yes, and uh, you can find me inside your hearts and minds and angrily being upset about the Eagles losing. Yeah, uh, you'd think you'd be used to it by now, but uh, apparently no. not. Um, anyways, all right. Thank you. Sad bird noises. Thank you, everybody, for listening. The sleeper has awakened. Seize the means of Applebee's. Of Applebee's. And we will see you next time.